Flannery O'Connor, Southern Savannah born, award-winning author, wrote this in 1960. I think it's safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. Fifty-six years later, I think that's still a vivid and very appropriate description of our culture. Christ-haunted. Our culture can't seem to get away from Jesus. There is so much of him everywhere, so many reminders of him. And that doesn't, isn't helped when a, a major motion picture like Risen is released that considers the resurrection of Christ through the eyes of an unbeliever with major stars and, and director. It doesn't help with the haunting. Here is Jesus once again. I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm looking forward to, to seeing that. But I've been interested in some of the posts and the reviews about the movie. I was reading on Reddit, this little string of Reddit readers. Apparently they had high hopes for this movie. That somehow this movie was going to tell a different story. You know, it was going to portray a different Jesus. Or maybe it was going to have a different ending. Or somehow this movie was going to prove that it was all a myth and Jesus would go away and stop haunting us. I don't know what they hoped for, but it was difficult for them to disguise their bitterness that the movie turned out to be a Christian movie. But what do you expect from a movie entitled Risen about Jesus? The title is a bit of a a spoiler. Then I read some reviews. Risen preaches to the choir. We inevitably get bogged down in the usual Sunday school cliches. Risen is a hot, steaming plate of biblical self-promotion. Those already invested in the Word of God won't bat an eye at the weightless assessment of Yeshua's inexplicable resurrection. This movie is about the rising of Christ made for Christians who read the Bible as a bedtime story. It isn't difficult to pick up on the emotions of these words, is it? They seem at times angry or words written truly by the haunted. Jesus keeps being portrayed to be who he is and was, the risen Son of God. So if the culture can't escape him, their best bet is to reshape him, reform him into someone who could be more acceptable or at least more easily dismissed by 21st century. But let's turn our attention from out there in here. All of us here in this room, we are far removed from first century Palestine. We're far removed from the culture of that day. We're far removed from the social system and the political systems of that day. So is it possible that the message and the actions of that Jesus first century Jesus would haunt us as well. You know, in what ways have we reshaped Jesus? Or at least reshaped his message to make him more acceptable to 21st century American Christianity. Less haunting of us and how we do things. Between now and Easter Sunday, we're going to be considering the last week of Jesus' life. 
the week that begins with the triumphant entry on what we call Palm Sunday, and it ends on Easter Sunday with the resurrection of Christ. And so I'm calling this series, The Week That Changed the World. I want you to raise your hand if you already knew that. Wow, impressive. Because all of this was in the blast that you could have clicked and read. I'm just checking. But what happened during this week stirred the entire city of Jerusalem. The hundreds of thousands of people in it, the the earth literally shook under their feet. People were changed. It was the week that changed the world. This week might first haunt us, but then this week must change us as well. It must stir us and shake us and remake us into the people that Jesus died and rose again that we might be. That's our prayer for these next few weeks together. This morning, we're going to consider Mark's gospel, the 11th chapter. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 11. And once you've found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to hear read together the word of the living God. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly." They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed behind shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you now once again that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word. That's your promise to us. And so we ask now that you would bless it to our understanding. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would join the truth of your word. Change us, shake us, stir us, whatever you need to do in us and through us, Lord, to make us more the people that you have called us to be, to do the things that you've called us to do. We offer ourselves to you now and to the authority of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. As we begin looking at this passage, we need to remember that Mark is the traveling companion and the assistant of the Apostle Peter. So Mark records all the stories that Peter tells about Jesus. And that's what Mark is doing in the verses we've just read. He's telling the story that Peter told about the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. He's not writing a systematic theology 
We're not intended to parse every word that is written here. He's telling us a story. And Mark is hopeful that those who read this story, those who weren't present at the event, will enter into the excitement of that moment, that day, that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We are familiar with this story. We've heard it so often in our lives. And there's so much about this story that brings us joy. We rejoice in all the praise that's given to Jesus here. You know, we are cheering on the crowd as they are cheering on Jesus. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're comfortable with this part of the story because we like to praise. And I think the singing this morning was clear evidence. You enjoy praising, lifting your voice up, singing praise to the Lord. We're comfortable with hailing Jesus as our king, at least in this place. As the crowd did on that Sunday so long ago. Finally giving to Jesus what he had received from all eternity past. Think about it. It's all Jesus had ever known. Praise, glory, and thanks. Until, ironically, he came to dwell on the earth that he created. And to live among the people that he created in his image from them Not so much. But here on this day, in this place, Jesus is finally, publicly, receiving what he has deserved for the entirety of his ministry. We're comfortable with that. Hail, Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my King. We rejoice when others that we know and love make that same confession and profession. And all of this, is as it should be. It's a beautiful part of this story. You and I should praise loudly. We should praise often. Greater and greater love for and awe of Jesus as we come to know Him and appreciate Him in an ever-increasingly intimate way. And there is no doubt that our praise of Christ will change us. But there are other parts of this story, parts that can easily haunt us, parts that should certainly stir us and shake us and change us. So we've got to look at this story in its setting to see all those parts that challenge us to be other than we already are and to do more than we're already doing, praising and gladly hailing Jesus as our King in this place. So... Let's look a little more closely at the story. And first, I just want to note this. This is one of the few events that's recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them tell this story. That should tell us that it's of great significance for us. And then let's note the intentionality that we see Jesus displaying through the details that Peter thought important enough to tell people when he was telling them the story of Jesus. There are details about this praising parade that the people in the parade did not know. You know, parade participants rarely, if ever, know what the parade organizers know. The participants don't know everything that has had to take place in order to to, to make this parade happen. So in a sense, the disciples... They are the parade organizers. They know the backstory. 
And in order for this particular parade to be a success, there was one item that they absolutely had to have, and that was a colt of a donkey, one that had never been ridden. It was absolutely vital for this parade to take place. Well, Jesus knows where to get one. How does Jesus know? How does he know that in the, the, the village ahead, just as you enter the village, that there's going to be a colt tied right there? How does he know that? And how does he know that the owner of the colt will release it when the disciples tell the owner what Jesus tells them to tell him? Was Jesus friends with the owner? Had they arranged all this ahead of time? Was the words Jesus told the disciples to say, was that secret code? All right, now, say these words and he'll release the colt to you. Seems a little bit too James Bond for me. I mean, how many times are two random guys going to enter this small village and try to take someone else's cult? I think it's a little overkill. I think more we see here Jesus working out of his divine nature, his divine power, his ability to move on the human heart. The detail mentioned here, it highlights the intentionality of how Jesus is setting up this event. Why did he need the donkey? Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, in this moment, is fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling scripture. That's why he must have this donkey. Rejoice, Zion, rejoice, daughter of Jerusalem. Rejoice, covenant people of God. I, Jesus, am your king, and I now come to you. That's what Jesus is proclaiming, that he is king. So we have to ask, what kind of king is he? We have to ask, What is the kingdom of God? You know, Mark has been talking a lot about the kingdom of God in his gospel because Peter talks a lot about the kingdom of God when he tells the stories of Jesus. In fact, the very first words, listen, the very first words that Mark records as having come from the lips of Jesus are these. First words Mark records of Jesus. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So don't miss it. The kingdom of God is the subject of his very first words at the beginning of his ministry. And his cult writing at the very end of his ministry proclaimed that he is the king of the kingdom of God. Whenever we talk about the kingdom of God, it's classically understood to have two different aspects There is the now part of the kingdom of God and there is the not yet part of the kingdom of God. Now you and I, we get the not yet part. Because this is the part where we think about ourselves and we think about our own salvation. When we come to faith in Christ, he receives us into his family, he adopts us as sons and daughters. And he ushers us into his kingdom over which he will reign forever and ever. Now, we are self-preservationist enough 
to care intensely about that. What's going to happen to me after this life is over? And if you and I have a heart at all, if we have any compassion in us, if we have any mercy in us, we're also concerned about the not yet for the people we know and love who don't yet know Christ. We want them to be part of this eternal kingdom over which Christ will reign, which he will establish forever when he returns. So I say that we have the not yet aspect of the kingdom covered. Here's the part where we struggle. The now part of the kingdom of God. While we wait for the eternal one, and that's what we're doing, while we wait, what should the kingdom look like right now? The answer to that question might haunt us just a little bit. And the best way for us to answer that question is to realize what was going on across the city of Jerusalem on the same day that Jesus entered with his parade from the east. There was another parade going on in the western part of the city. This parade was Pilate's parade. You know Pilate, right, governor? Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. The governors of that place hadn't lived in Jerusalem for for many, many years. No, Pilate lived in the spectacular new city of Caesarea, built right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Oh, doesn't that sound wonderful? Who wouldn't want to live there? 60 miles away from Jerusalem. But... Since Pilate was the governor who ruled over a city of Jews, he had to make an appearance at all the important celebrations. And so Passover week, the week that began on Palm Sunday, it was the most important week of the year for the Jewish people. So, of course, Pilate had to show up. The parade that brings Pilate into town. Ha! Now that is an impressive parade. It's a show of Roman imperial power and glory. While Jesus is making his parade surrounded by a bunch of peasants, Pilate was accompanied by imperial cavalry and soldiers. And so if Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God in his parade, Pilate is proclaiming the power and the prestige of the Roman Empire. Pilate has not come as a humble worshiper, Pilate has not come to show unity and solidarity with the people over whom he rules. Pilate has come, like all the governors for the past decades, to make sure that there is no trouble from these Jewish people who are so prone to revolt. Especially when they all get together for an event like this and they start reminiscing about the old days, the golden days when they were the most powerful nation on earth. Things can happen. Roman troops were already in the city. They lived in the Antonia Fortress that was built on the corner of the temple complex, but they weren't enough. So Pilate brought reinforcements. Now, if the sound of jackboots on pavement struck fear in the hearts of people of Nazi Germany, imagine what this spectacle, what this show of Roman power and authority did to those who lived in and were visiting the city of Jerusalem. It's a display of power 
that the Jewish people cannot overcome. And it's a display of a theology that has beaten the theology of the Jews. Because not only is Caesar that Pilate represents, not only is he emperor, he is son of a god. And that god must be powerful. And he must have shown Caesar favor if Caesar gets to rule, rule over a nation as strong and expansive as Rome is. So that's the accepted theology of the day that Pilate is reinforcing with his parade. And so now we see what lies behind Jesus' intentionality. We see that the triumphal entry was not some kind of impromptu, grassroots, organically formed uh, around Jesus. It's not a picture of a humble Jesus saying, oh, shucks, guys, stop, stop, really, shh, stop, stop. Put, put those palm branches down. You guys are embarrassing me, quit. It's not what it was. It was the intentional beginning of the week that would change the world. It is the event that would draw the battle lines between clashing theologies, clashing politics, and clashing social orders. We'll see these conflicts over and over again during the course of this last week of Jesus' life because it is an intense week of conflict. It's the battle that must be defined. If the victory at the battle's end, which is Jesus' resurrection from the dead, woo, if it's to be fully comprehended, Jesus' parade, Pilate's parade, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world. The rest of the Zechariah passage that Jesus is fulfilling tells us what the kingdom of God is like. Everybody with me? Zechariah 9. I guess if you're not with me, you wouldn't answer, but if you are. Zechariah 9, verses 10 through 12. God says, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea, to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with my blood, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who still have hope. See, this is a, a picture of the way the kingdom of God is supposed to be, a kingdom of peace and, and hope. It's the way it will be someday. From our study, lengthy study, the book of Deuteronomy, we know what the kingdom of God should look like. God has repeatedly revealed His heart to us through that book. He wants the disenfranchised, the widows, the orphans, the aliens. He wants them cared for. From our study of the book of Deuteronomy, we know all about the sabbatical year. We know all about the year of Jubilee. We know that God intends in those years for debts to be forgiven, for prisoners to be set free, for land to go back to the families to which it was given. God intends that His covenant community, His kingdom on earth, be a community not of oppression, but a community where all are cared for. That's what God wants. It's beyond question. We've seen it over and over and over again. 
But what was the reality among God's people? We're safe here because that was them, not us, Old Testament. Here was the reality. Micah, the prophet, chapter 3. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that's right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, her prophets tell fortunes for money. Prophet Isaiah, chapter 1. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. You rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Finally, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 5. Run to and fro throughout the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth. Didn't look much like the kingdom of God as God describes it. That's the way it was before the exile, before God sent them away. But God brought them back. Things didn't improve much then. By the time of Jesus, as you know, Rome ruled Palestine. And Rome chose from among the Jewish elite those who would administer the kingdom for them. And we're familiar with those people. They're called in the Gospels the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. So now the temple of God isn't just a spiritual place, the dwelling place of God on earth. Now it's the center of economic and political activities right in the center of Jerusalem. And so the leaders of God's people did to them what Rome did to their entire, na- entire nation. They dominated the, them. And so the issue isn't how wicked the chief priests and the elders and the scribes were individually, they might have been quite charming, likable, friendly people. People you just love to eat dinner with. That's not the issue. The issue is the role that they played in perpetuating this system of domination and oppression in order to play nice with Rome. In order to do this, they collaborated with Rome, collected taxes for Rome, struck unholy deals with Rome. So the issue is that they were not at work building the kingdom of God in the right now. They weren't doing it. And that's their problem. Instead, they worked to keep the system in place because it benefited them personally. And if it kept Rome happy, then then everybody was happy and Jerusalem was a better place. So why rock the boat? One chief priest or Pharisee said this about Jesus in John chapter 11. If we let him, if we let Jesus go on like this, 
everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That was their interest. And so to circle back to Jesus' word at the very beginning of Mark, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Mark thinks more of the word repent than we do. Certainly, certainly repent means for us to turn. To turn away from our sins and turn in faith toward Christ. Certainly repent means to turn away from that path that we're on that leads to death and destruction and turn in faith to Christ to the road that leads to everlasting life. That's repentance, sure enough. Belief is believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but belief to Mark is more than just words spouted. For Mark, repentance and belief, they mean to trust in the kingdom of God and to commit to that kingdom. And that's the haunting part for us about this story. The haunting part of Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry. It requires from us more than affirmation. It requires from us action. Action that is consistent with what God says the kingdom is like. It means seeing the clash, the battle that the triumphal entry started. It means not being part of the system that does not address oppression. It means looking for ways that we, typically very charming, nice, kind people, can do as individuals and as a church to make a difference in the now kingdom of God while we wait for the not yet part of the kingdom of God. It means we want to make it like Jesus intends for it to be and thereby powerfully demonstrating the gospel in real time and in real lives. It means... We can't be left alone. Leave me alone. Let me praise. I'll sing loudly. I'll even raise my hands. And you know what? I'm going to get crazy. I want to invite someone to come and praise with me. Now, let that be enough. Lord, let that be enough. Let that be enough. It isn't enough. And so I'm reminding myself this morning... And I'm reminding you this morning, it isn't enough. It's wonderful. Praise is wonderful. It's the starting point. It's what enables us to do everything else we're called to do, but it isn't enough. We've got to be at work building the kingdom of God now. We've got to be intentional about it. Listen, our community groups are what? Say it with me. Family on mission together. One more time. We are family on mission together. We've got to be intentional. Listen, we've got to be intentional in our community groups about being missional, about doing the work of the kingdom. And we can start small. If the task is overwhelming, we can start by talking about it within our community groups. How can we be intentional about building the kingdom? We can pray, Lord, how is it that you have gifted us in this particular group to make a difference in this world, to be, to be about building your kingdom right now? And then we can begin to do the things 
that Jesus reveals to us that we can do. And, and I believe that He will do that. We can ask Him to show us our blindness. How we, like the religious people of Jesus' time, might be sustaining. Or how we might be contributing to the problem instead of being part of those who actively work for justice and mercy. The Jesus of the triumphal entry can be haunting. He will not leave us alone. He will not leave us alone when we will not be the people that he has called us to be. And when we will not be or do the things that he has called us to do. The Jesus who said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He will not leave us alone to not proclaim the good news to the poor, to not set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's going to stir us. He'll shake us. He'll haunt us until we speak the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation through faith in Christ alone. Sins forgiven, life eternal, until we speak those words. Not just in this place, but out there. Where it's not as acceptable and not as comfortable a place for us. He'll stir us and shake us until the good news of the gospel is more than just words spoken. But actions lived out in the world. The week that changed the world is supposed to change us as well. So which procession are we marching in? Will we be in Jesus' parade or Pilate's? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. Lord, it can be haunting to us, and the reality is that you don't leave us as we are, and that's really the good news about the gospel. Scripture tells us that we are made new in you, new creations. We are indwelled by your Spirit. Lord, you are sanctifying us. That's what the sanctification process is all about. It's about change. It's about becoming more and more like Christ. This passage shows us, Lord Jesus, what you were like, even what was on your heart, how intentional you were in all the things that you did. And so we pray now, Lord, that you would make us more the people that you intend us to be and enable us to do the things that you have called us to do. Lord, these things are not comfortable for us. They, they haunt us. They're troublesome. They make us wish we had never heard these words. We should have gone somewhere else this morning to worship because now we're accountable. But that's what we are, Lord, accountable to you. You leave us in this place to be building your right now kingdom while we wait for the not yet kingdom to become a reality for us. So Lord, help us be intentional in our desire to work with you, to partner with you in making a difference in this world for Jesus' sake, for being people of compassion and mercy and justice, faithfully preaching the gospel, speaking the gospel with their words and living it out through our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.